Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast presented by Red Circle. I am Matt Zemek. You will soon hear from my partner, Saqib Ali. I'm just going to line up what's coming up on this week's show. First off, we're happy to announce that we are sponsored again by our friends at Stats Insider in Australia, statsinsider.com.au. We want you to visit the site. That's really what Stats Insider wants from us in exchange for its sponsorship of our show. And boy, do we have a great show today. Uh, you know, we had Darren Cahill on our podcast uh, to preview Roland Garros. And during this first week of Wimbledon, we have another Australian tennis great 1987 Wimbledon champion Pat Cash joins the Tennis with an Accent podcast. He will talk to Sakib, and that will be segment one of our show. Segment two, as part of our uh, relationship with Stats Insider, we have tennis writer and sports writer James Rosewarn. He's going to talk to me for 20 minutes about the Stats Insider Wimbledon simulator, uh, the 10 men and women who can win Wimbledon, and a lot of facts and figures about um, the odds of winning Wimbledon uh, and uh, grass track records, things like that. And you're going to learn about the Stats Insider grass ratings model. Some really helpful information is going to come up from James uh, in that segment. And we want you to follow James Rosewarn on Twitter. That's going to be uh, something we're going to mention in that segment. And then part three, Sakib and I talk about the tennis world. Sakib and I kicking it on tennis. That's always a part of our show. So that's going to be part three of our podcast. And you will have uh, a few advertisements read for Stats Insider. That's also part of our sponsorship. So if you if you hear our uh, conversations get interrupted by an ad, uh, which is going to be me uh, reading a script. Um, it's an ad for Stats Insider. It doesn't mean that the shows or the segments are over. So um, Pat Cash is our featured item. Then James Rosewarn of Stats Insider. And then Sakib Ali and Matt Zemek talking tennis. That's all this week on a jam-packed Tennis with an Accent podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib hosting the show. And uh, it's one of those uh, moments when... You know, the podcast is very rich because we're really talking to someone who's, way, uh, who's achieved a lot in the tennis, uh, game of tennis, former Wimbledon champion. Yes, Wimbledon champion. Does, you know, I don't get to say those words every often, you know, very often in the podcast. is Pat Cash, uh, the 1987 Wimbledon champion, has joined us from London. Uh, welcome, Pat. Welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's just uh, it's an honor. You know, uh, this is the pinnacle of the sport, uh, no matter how the game has <laughs> right. changed. Uh, Wimbledon champion, yeah. you know, uh, and I have uh, quite a few memories. We'll talk about that 87 win over Lendl and then the 88 quarterfinal over, uh, with Becker. I mean, there's a lot of memories that I go back uh, to uh, my days back in India when I watch you, you live on TV. But uh, it's All a right. good day. Right. Congratulations. Your charge has qualified for the main draw. Alexi Paprin, just uh, how was uh, the first three rounds? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I've been uh, sort of working with Lexi, uh, consulting, uh, doing coaching for for the grass court season with the ambition to get plenty of grass court matching matches. He's creeping into the top 100. Um, he was a junior French Open champion, so uh, he's quite quite established on the clay, and he's just learning to play. Well, hasn't really played much on grass at all, so. For him to qualify, um, it was a very good effort. Uh, you know, the, the three always always tough to to play the qualifying. There's a lot of very highly competitive, um, extremely competitive. So today's match was oh, I don't know about four hours long, and ended up winning 
in four sets, four very close sets. Uh, um, so uh, yeah, so he's in the main draw for the first time. First time he's actually got in the main draw of a Grand Slam by himself. He mm. had a wild card at the French Open, a wild card at the Australian Open. So um, it's, a, it's a good moment for him, and he's he's got a big, powerful game. Uh, and uh, you know, it just he's got to learn to to use the rest of his game, and which he's doing really nicely. Absolutely, and uh, something you know very poignant. You just said. Uh, he's never played on grass. Uh, that wasn't the case for young Aussies, you know, back in your day, because everybody played on grass at Kuiyong and Davis Cup was on grass. Uh, times have changed, yeah. and it's no secret. But uh, grass court tennis still has a special place. So, uh, do you get goosebumps coming? I know you, you settle in London, but do you still have a special connection with Wimbledon whenever you're back for the qualifying and covering the tournament, maybe as media member? Well, well yes. I mean, uh, not quite as fresh as it used to be. I've been doing it for. Uh, you know, over 40 years now, so um, so it's not as exciting as it used to be. But there's always new, something new at the at the club, uh, new courts or new roof or new this or new that. They're always they're constantly expanding, and it's it's changed a lot since. Um, actually, I went and played qualifying when I was I think 17, maybe even 16. So um, so that's a it's a long time ago, 40 whatever it is, 47 years ago. Yeah. Uh, could that be right? No, 42 years ago. What am I now? Uh, <laughs> 42 years ago. So, so um, uh, yeah. So it's obviously changed, changed a lot since since then. Uh, the qualifying is the courts are so much better. They had the, the grass court were not very good standard for for many many years, but they've improved those a lot, um, which is neat, needed to be because. It's the only qualifying that is not on site of the Grand Slams. All the others are actually on the, on the site um, where you play. Uh, these grass courts, of course, take a lot of maintenance, and um, they're at a sports ground, really the All England uh, Bank of England, sorry, Bank of England sports ground. Um, and uh, the, the problem is that the guys used to qualify, but they go into Wimbledon, the, the Wimbledon courts or the All England courts, and the so very different that it's uh, it was a giant contrast, and uh, most most of them struggled, of course, naturally. Uh, first of all, getting into the draw, but then ch- having changed. And grass courts, if people don't know, grass courts vary a lot, even from literally one club to the next. So as clay courts can tend to as well. Um, so there's certain things you can do on at Roland Garros, uh, you know, I, that, that you can't do in a local club. In somewhere in in Italy or Germany on clay court or Portugal or South America, uh, it's the same thing at, at the Old England Club or Queens. There were some great courts there. Certainly, it's easier to return and, and uh, easier to pass when the courts are so nice. So um, they, you have to change your tactics at, at times as well. No, absolutely. Uh, there's always been a talk, uh, you know, how the game has changed. Uh, so let's start this conversation uh, really with, you know, Pat Cash, the player. And Wimbledon is, you know, the place where most players would like to make a name. And you did that, you know, quite handsomely, you know, by beating uh, uh, Ivan Lendl in the 87 final. But it's 86. Uh, is a pretty important year because winning the decisive rubber against Michael Panfosh of Sweden, giving Australia the Davis Cup, Coming back from what two sets to love down, that has to be one of the biggest moments. And uh, do you see a connect? You know, uh, winning the title in December and then having your best Wimbledon in '87. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think I, mean, I think Davis Cup really makes men out of boys. Uh, I've always said that, and, and and vice versa as well. Fed Cup does the same thing. You tend to see the women who played Fed Cup 
they tend to perform very well the next year. Um, and the same with the, with the guys. Uh, certainly, you know, playing the Davis Cup was at, you know, is at home at Kuyong um, in Melbourne. So um, it was a great thrill to play in my play Davis Cup in my hometown. Um, you know, I was pretty lucky to get through Fern Fors, who was a very underrated grass court player and uh, played very well on a fast, fast grass court. Uh, of course, he was a collegiate champion a couple of times in the U.S., uh, I think he won two years in a row. I think it's the only person to have done that. And the college courts tend to be pretty quick. So he was very good on all surfaces, but I, I certainly underestimated him, and I think we all did. And But uh, getting through that tough match uh, uh, in, in uh, the Davis Cup at Kuyong, and then backing, of course, backing up, losing in the final the next couple of weeks later uh, in the Australian Open. Um to Edberg, uh, it sort of gave me confidence when I came to the, the grass again at, at uh, the All England. I felt like I was one of the few handful of players who'd actually played a lot of tennis on grass that year um, because you know the grass courts were dying off. Um, there's actually more grass court tournaments now than there was back in my day, um, or practically back in my day, because we had Australian Open, we had a couple of lead-up tournaments, and that's it. Now there's Actually, in fact, there's tournaments, uh, uh, the Stuttgart tournament, there's Halle tournament, there's one in Antalya, there's one in Mallorca, there's uh, yeah, there's one in uh, Surbiton, there's one in Queens. So there's actually quite a lot of grass court tournaments for players to play. Um, in my day, there was New South Wales Open or South Australian Open and, and then the Australian Open. So, um, And then, of course, Queens. That was it. Queens that was the only, really the only lead-up tournament. So... You know, we talk about how many grass court tournaments. There actually is quite a lot, quite a few now. Uh, not like it used to be, of course. Many, you know, 40 years ago, there was, everything was grass. But uh, and of course, two majors. But uh, you know, that uh, I think having played a lot on grass, uh, and it was quick then. The grass was quick. Certainly, in Australia it was very bouncy, very hard, dry, hard bouncing, high bouncing grass. Where in the UK. Um, it tends to be, though the courts have changed a bit over the years, but it tended to be soft and not very high bouncing. So a kick serve wouldn't be very effective. So you'd have to, again, adjust your your, your serve um, to serve and volley uh, on at, um, in Britain as you would against uh, Australia. So different styles for different, um, as I said, grass courts are not always just the same. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was uh, that was one of my questions. Uh, Koo Young definitely played uh, differently, at least it seems on TV, uh, than uh, Wimbledon in the 80s. Uh, so your thoughts on that? Uh, is it just the climate uh, or the way the grass was, you know, prepared is different? Uh, yeah, I'm guessing it was... I don't know the old details, but I'm guessing it was different grass, uh, different blend of grass, but but uh, it was just harder, you know. It was just... It was just uh, it was more similar to the, the Wimbledon now. Wimbledon is... Got a lot of technology. They, uh, you know, they, they know they got sensors in the court to, to say to tell them how when to water it and uh, how much moisture is in the grass, uh, you know, and and then they cover it and put the roof on or whatever they whatever they do. So um, Australia, of course, we just had less less rain, so the courts were harder and and bouncier and and not that dissimilar than um, the second week of the Grand Slam. If you play on court two or court three, which is a little little bowl at, here at Wimbledon it's um uh, and it gets really hot there it dries the grass out and it comes very fast so the closest thing to Australian grass would be uh, court two at, at Wimbledon 
somewhere towards the second week of the tournament. Very fast, very bouncy. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, just, yeah, generally speaking, just bouncier and a little bit faster than the, than English grass. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, Wimbledon 87 uh, is the talking point uh, here. When you came in, I think what, what you seeded, I think, 11th or 12th. Uh, but then you did put on a clinic. I mean, serve and volley. And uh, those of the young listeners, I mean, you were more of a placement server. You could pretty much rally at the net. I've seen some matches. Uh, so you, and you, you had to go through a rough draw. I mean, Guy Forget, Mats Willander, again, uh, not a great grass court player, but a top 10 guy back then. And then uh, Jimmy Connors and Ivan Lendl. So you didn't drop a set. I mean, you probably dropped maybe one set in the championships. Yeah, uh, look, you know, I had a good run. I uh, as I said I felt pretty confident coming into the tournament. I lost to Jimmy Connors at Queens Club. Uh, Boris Becker was the was the red hot favourite. He'd won two Wimbledon's and then two Queens, and then of course the lead up Queens as well. So that was his third in a row. And um, you know, so he was the he was the favourite. Uh, I knew it'd be I'd, I'd have to play my best tennis to beat him if I was at the plane. It was going to be in the I think the final or semi-final, I'm not sure what, but, um, you know, I was just focused on my own game and, and, uh, uh, seedings, uh, you know, they were in those days, the clay courts were slow and the grass courts were fast. So this, they would, they would seed grass court players though. They'd shuffle things around at Wimbledon as they do, but they would tend to shuffle things around, but they would still leave it, you know, reasonably close. So, you know, I might have been 11th seed, but I think as far as a fast court or grass court player, I was, you know, certainly in the top top uh, handful of players. Um, but you still, they still had some clay court players seated above me. But um, so I, I think I think people who really knew tennis weren't totally surprised by the by my win. Um, having you know, knowing uh, you know what I what I'd done leading into the tournament, really the six months previously, and and. Um, and certainly Queens was the, the lead-up tournament. It gave me a little bit of people, a little bit of indication. It's it's uh, just a one-week tournament, of course, and I got the semi-final there, so I had some some form of some sort. And does the grass in Queen even now does it uh, play very similarly to Wimbledon? I know they use the same ball, so it was ideal prep, I guess. Or yeah, it's uh, it's slightly different blend of grass. It used to be the same. Now it's now Wimbledon has changed, made it thicker because the because it's a two-week tournament. Queens, of course, is only one week, so it doesn't have to last as long. Um, All England court made, made it thicker, tougher grass, so that would grip the ball more um, and made the, made the court slower uh, and, dare I say, bounce slightly higher because it's, 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 uh, we used to stop it um, a little bit. But, um, you know, I think Queens is almost like almost from day one or day two is almost like day four or five at, at the all England club or even day six. So more like a second week tournament, um, as far as the speed, speed goes. Um, the Queens court is beautiful. absolutely perfect. And a center court is, and it's great, great to play on. And many regard it as a better, better court than, than the center court of all England. Well, I think it probably used to be, I don't think it is now. I think you can't you certainly can't complain about the, 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 Centre court at Wimbledon these days, it's uh, or any of the courts, they've um, gone a lot of lengths to put science and make sure that the courts are very level. <clears throat> um, back in my day, court two was a called the graveyard court. It was called graveyard court because it was so uneven. It was um, it had been laid you know 100 years before, and it, it, the whole earth had moved and 
there was lumps and bumps and all sorts of stuff going on in it. That created some character, created some challenges, certainly created some interest. And um, in a lot of you know, graveyard quarters, a lot of seeds got beaten there, uh, including myself, uh, because it was just it's a very different than the other courts, and this court one and, and centre court. Threw you out of court two, and you, the ball would bounce all over the place. You could lose your rhythm very quickly, which would, of course, suit the uh, level, of, level of playing field. Uh, not literally, but figuratively, because... Um, the uh, the top seed really couldn't you know play their free flowing game I suppose. Hmm. And let's talk about the final. I mean, Ivan Lendl and you you I think uh, have shared some some great battles and especially at the majors. I believe you played uh, you beaten him I think twice in Australia uh, on Kooyong and then at Flinders Park with the first year. And then uh, he got you in that Super Saturday semi-final in 84, and then the biggest match mm-hmm. was won by you. So talk about that final and what that rivalry meant, playing Lendl for those big matches. He was like one of the uh, marquee you know, players of that generation. Uh, slightly mm-hmm. older than you, but uh, you guys did play uh, some of your best tennis against each other. Yeah, well, Ivan was the one number one player in the world. Um, you know, he'd won just about everything. Uh, he was desperate to win Wimbledon. Um, uh, you know, he was, uh, uh, I suppose, one of the very first big, powerful players to, in the, of the modern era. I mean, Boris would have been another one. Most of the players were still, you know, coming off um, the generation before, including myself, which was sort of an attacking player like, like McEnroe. McEnroe hit the ball hard, but didn't hit, you know, really as powerful as, as, as Lendl. Um but, you know, when you've got big swings and you hit the ball hard, there's also a downside to that, and that's is on a faster court, you can't afford to swing the ball, uh, swing swing bigger. And um, these days you see the players, even on the grass, hanging way back 10 feet behind the baseline. That's to give themselves time to swing because uh, they've got the biggest, generally speaking, they've all got bigger swings. Um, uh, oh, so it's generally speaking. They've got bigger swings these days, the players, and... And that was the case of Ivan. He's been very successful in the French Open, of course, Australian Open, US Open. Uh, when it came to Wimbledon, the court was probably just a little quick for his liking and uh, forced him. He knew that he was going to have to hit a lot of passing shots against a Becker and an Edberg or a McEnroe or uh, myself, uh, even LeConte or Noah. You know, there's a whole bunch of great serve volleyers. I'm sure I'm missing a couple of them. There somewhere along the line, said so it, uh, you know, Ziv- Tim Mayotte, you know, Z- Zivojinovic, right? He was a pretty yeah, big... Zivojinovic, yeah, big serving, you know, serve volleyer. So there was a there was a whole really good bunch of serve volleyers we were attacking nonstop, and and he realised on a quick grass court that it was just not doable. So he had to adapt his game to becoming more attacking, and and he was very successful at it, but uh, just didn't quite get over the line at Wimbledon and. You know, my job was to make him hit as many volleys as he possibly could. Um, you know, not an easy task because he had a very big serve. Lendl was sort of famous for his forehand or his, or his backhand, but he had a massive serve. Um, and um, his second serve could get a little short at times, and that was my job to attack that. Hmm. But, um, you know, people, very few people realize how big his first serve was. It was a very, very powerful first serve. No, agreed. And then uh, let me just add this to the you know your response because he was coached by Tony Roche, you know, like uh, another Aussie legend, known for his you know backhand volley. Uh, and like you said, you know, your job was to get more volleys out of Lendl's. So how impressed were you? And of course, he was world number one. That the conscious effort he made, his volleys were not natural like you guys. 
uh, or Ed Bergu, Becker, you know, Max, some of those guys. But he was an okay volleyer. He did come to the net uh, willingly. It uh, was not a natural decision for him. How did you view that move? Because he did make five Wimbledon semis and two times he reached the finals. Yeah, that's right. I mean, people say he wasn't a grass court player, but I, I, would, I would argue that. I'd say, well, if you get to two Wimbledon finals and uh, I think Australian Open final as well on the grass and whatever else he did, uh, I'd say that's a pretty good grass court record. Uh, yeah, he didn't win the Wimbledon, but, he, you know, probably overall he might have even a better record than I do on, on the grass and uh, winning, winning more matches. But, um, yeah, I mean, he was a little bit out of his comfort zone serving and volleying, but he, he, he was a he was a very solid volleyer, but, uh, you know, the, my, my job was really to make it difficult for him and to make him hit lots of volleys, and uh, the returning was part of it, you know, so I had, my job was to return that big first serve or to put pressure on his second serve, and, you know, that, that hasn't changed in, in, in tennis. Um, in the men's, you know, you don't you often have a chance to, to be able to, to, to be able to, to, to uh, you know, attack the the first serve, first serve, you only got a chance to, to actually get hit a second serve, uh, mm. you know, somehow get your racket on it. So that hasn't changed. Um, okay, so le- uh, let's come back to some of your rivals, uh, but let's talk about uh, the loss against, uh, what is it, Peter Lundgren? After you won Wimbledon, you go to New York. Was that one of the biggest lows? Uh, you know, because you did have a good record in New York. You made a semis not too long ago. So how was that match? How, how do you view, uh, how, how you go back in time and, how you know how how big of a setback that was because majors were still pretty important. Well, it was all about the majors. Yeah, Peter was a uh, you know very fine uh, player, He'd beaten a lot of good players, and that was a uh, 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 he'd already beaten me previously that summer. Um, you know, he was very much a, played like Mats Villander. Um, you know, a lot of lot of returns. Uh, very solid player, so that was a that was a very tough draw for me. And of course, we didn't have 32 seeds there; he would have been seeded. But uh, you know, 16 seeds in those days, so it was one of those matchups that you don't get more, but you're used to. Where the, one of the top, you know, just outside the top seeds um, would uh, sometimes come up against one of the seeds first round, and that was that was the case against Peter. So. That was clearly the toughest first round of the tournament, and um, I drew him, and we had a we had a battle. Uh, can't remember what the score was. I think we went, went all the way to the end, though. But uh, um, you know, I had my chances, but didn't didn't quite get it. So yeah, that it was disappointing because I thought I had a great chance to do well at the U.S. Open, and but um, you know, not not to be. I think uh, you know, the, coming off the back of Wimbledon win, I had a bit of a flat patch, and. Um, Hmm. Uh, struggled to, uh, you know, with the pressure and expectations on myself and from other people that it's, you know, it's uh, something that you can't really, um, can't really prepare for. You just got to go through and learn, learn it when it happens. Uh, you can, everybody can give you their opinion on what to do, um, but it all happened reasonably quickly for me. I was, you know, I was uh, Davis Cup champion, you know, lost to Australian Open, Wimbledon winner all in sort of six months. Um, though I'd had some good results, but that uh, that came pretty quickly. And it was, you know, I, I sort of achieved the one thing that I wanted to achieve. It's it's not always easy to rebound from that. Uh, these days with, you know, we're looking at guy, talking about guys are winning 20 grand slams and girls and 15 and 18. And it's just ridiculous numbers. Back in the day, it was, it was all about trying to win a grand slam. There's so many competitive guys, so many people who could win it. And, uh, you know, if you won a Grand Slam, 
that was your, that was what you aimed for. You didn't aim for 20 Grand Slams or 10 or 15. And you'd do that, you'd have a good career and you'd settle down and have a family and move on by the time you were sort of late 20s or 30s. But, uh, um, you know, that was sort of regard, your regard as done by the time you were sort of 29 or 30. Yeah. Obviously, these days, that shows it's not the case. And I never really believed that, but I certainly didn't feel like life was all about playing tennis for the you know forever no definitely it's a different era in every sport there's more information athletes are playing a lot late into the 30s than you know you're right uh, they train differently there's more medicine more information uh, so let's uh, talk about some of your rivals we talk about this golden era of Djokovic Federer Nadal and even Murray but the era you were competing in that was the tail end of Mac and then there was Lendl then there was uh, Willander Becker Edberg and then you won a major. So these guys that I mentioned all have won more than six majors. So that was a pretty tough time to be competing. They were like different contrasts, different rivalries. Uh, I'm sure it's pretty well documented. You know, you and Lendl had a lot of respect for each other, but I don't think you got along well and, and vice versa. Like Becker and McEnroe didn't get along well. So they were, you don't hear that stuff these days. Everybody's uh, too polished. You know, there's a PR department. You know, every player has his image to maintain. <laughs> it was not like that. Yeah. I mean, talk about those rivalries and some of those moments that you want to share with the audience here. Well, like I think it's fair to say we're very competitive, you know, and we didn't have to worry about uh, our image. Um, it was all about winning tennis matches. Uh, there wasn't uh, 15 stations, internet, uh, you know, 20, 25 sports stations or, or any of this sort of stuff. There wasn't any mobile phones. There wasn't... Um, there wasn't any, you know, the cameras were basically a, you know, almost a Polaroid camera or whatever you, you had. So you had tend to have your own privacy. Um, you could do your own things. It was a different, it was a completely different sort of era. Um, and you know, you would uh, you make a living from from playing each other. Uh, if you're lucky, you'd get an endorsement or a TV commercial. But um, you know, by and large, you're you're out there trying to make a living against somebody else, and and you know, we called it as it is. Um, so, uh, gamesmanship. I, I you know, I was brought up, uh, you know, out of the back of, you know, Matt, or I certainly played McEnroe, but McEnroe and Connors. I played my first year. I played nearly Nastasi in my first year on the tour. Um, and you know, if you don't, if if you think that was easy to compete against these guys. Uh, you know, they'd be sledging you and on the side of the court uh, after a point, um, change of ends uh, in the locker room. You know, that that's just the way it, that that was the way it went. You know, they 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 would mouth off to you. Lendl was famous for doing that, uh, insulting you whenever. You know, sometimes just in jest, but you know, it's all it's all still the same thing. It was all trying to attempt of intimidation. Um, so you had to, you know, you had to stand up or you, you got washed away. So, uh, if you, some of the guys dealt with it different ways, everybody did, you know, I was, I stood up for myself. I didn't ever, I, I, uh, you know, I was never intimidated by somebody who'd like to mouth off. Uh, I was quite happy to mouth off back to them. You know, Ed Berg was pretty quiet. He kept to himself as did Villander, um, you know, McEnroe, as we know, and Connors. So they, uh, we know how they, you know, they were, pretty intimidating characters on the court um, and, and unbelievably competitive. And, uh, you know, you, if you gave an inch, it was all over. You know, it was as simple as that. Um, you know, they would intimidate you and uh, put you off your tennis, try anything. 
line calls, umpires, referees, uh, get the crowd involved, uh, you know, drag you into the into the argument, anything to put you off. And um, so you learn pretty quickly, and you learn to give it back as, as well as you as well as you got it. Otherwise, you'd be, as I said, you'd be uh, you'd be uh, you know yesterday's fish and chip paper. Um, it'd be it'd be history. So so uh, you know, it was a you know, it was it was it was quite. Yeah. In, in a way, do you yeah. think that era was deeper? Like there's a lot of conversation, you know, comparing eras. It's, it's a fruitless exercise, but sometimes fans do it. But do you think uh, even Safin has said, like you know, who retired what a decade ago? He said, you know, back in the day when he was playing, they were like 16 seeds in the early part of his career, and a lot of uh, you could have a tricky third round match. Things are different now. What, what is your view if you take that standpoint? And talk about your days in the late '80s to early '90s with the, with those set of guys. Uh, well, look, every era has got champions. I think that people got to realize that. Well, then, you know, they look at. Um, I mean, a classic example is is you know I'm I, I working with Alexi Popper in here, you know, and we, we're out there at, at, at uh, on the courts there, Roehampton, which we we discussed aren't the greatest courts of all time. They, they're good courts. They're good grass courts. Um, most people would walk on that and think, wow, this is beautiful. It's not quite the same, but it's still a good court. It's bad bounces. Uh, you know, I often say, and he said, oh, I can't play on these courts. I mean, for days, he's just like, I can't, I can't hit the ball in the middle of the strings. Um, and here's a guy with a modern, powerful strings and powerful racket, uh, you know, home ground strokes. He couldn't hit the ball. He couldn't get the timing. And I still look at him and go, you imagine playing with a wooden racket and a small sweet spot and faster balls? Um, and just gut strings. I, I said, you have a, I think you might have a bit of respect for the players that came before you. You know, are they more talented? Are, they, are these players, Rod Labors and these guys, more talented because they, because of their conditions, because they were playing in the, the shoes that they were playing? They didn't have these, 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 uh, you know, uh, great. Uh, well, we didn't. We, they're just starting to come in. The good technology of shoes. We had terribly heavy shoes uh, in my career. Um, a lot, lot of it. Uh, and uh, you know, so you just you ha- you have a a good grasp of how talented these guys were to be able to hit the ball in the middle of the string consistently on those sorts of courts with that speed and the balls very fast. I mean, they're fast balls. I mean, they're all the Wimbledon court balls were always the slowest, and they'd be significantly faster than they are now. And you know, with bad bounces and wind and everything else. So. Um, I think once you put yourself in that, that shoes, and I've been lucky enough, and I think it's one of the, the great things that I'm, I've been blessed with is I've actually been able to see different sides of uh, technologies as they're developing. The 80s was a great year, era of technology developing in everything, in engineering, uh, and certainly passed through shoes and rackets and strings and grips and, and balance, you know, workmanship on rackets, uh, balls changing, strings were changing, uh, courts were slowing down, then speeding up, then being fast again. Um, great changes. Uh, sports science, you know, we barely had a physio in our in our locker room. Now there's ten uh, massage tables with guys waiting around. How was information? Uh, like, suppose, sorry to cut you off, but uh, it's all intriguing stuff. If you and your coach say we're preparing for a guy you haven't seen much before, what kind of information was there? Because now there's video, you know, footage for almost, uh, you know, a lot of tournaments have, you know, TV cameras even on outside courts. So what yeah. was the plan uh, of playing an opponent that you didn't know? How how did you guys prepare? It's like good old fashioned. You talk to somebody, you talk to somebody, and then you talk to somebody else. You know, who's this guy? You know, I was lucky at an Aussie team, and usually the Aussies talked amongst themselves and said, 
I've got to play so-and-so, who's that? And they go, oh, yeah, I played him last week. Or, oh, go and talk to, uh, you know, go and talk to Bill. He, he played him last week. He'll give you some tips. You go out to Bill and go, Bill, I just played, you know, I've got to play this guy. Oh, yeah, I played him last week. You know, work on his form, work to his form, whatever it happened to be. Or you get on the phone. I mean, a coach would get on the phone to the other coach. And, you know, so you develop friendships and, um, you know, Australians stuck together and, you know, gave each other advice. So that was helping each other. We still have that mateship. Um, so that's uh, there's still an element of that. But, of course, now I get, uh, you know, if Alexi's playing, I, I coach Coco Vanderway. So they got the US Open, USTA have a vast network of um, people who are doing stats and whatever. So I'll get a... I'd get five matches came up so I could watch five matches. If I, if I had the time or the patience, I could watch <clears throat> Alexi's opponent five matches um, last night if I wanted to. Not all on grass, but whatever they could they could dig up. But there was a couple on the grass. I could watch yesterday's match replay. I could get all the stats. But stats, stats don't tell half the story. I mean, people, some players really like the stats. Other people, players don't. Uh, I'm, I'm somewhere in between. I'll, I'll pick I'll pick out certain things in stats, but stats don't tell you anything about under pressure. Um, they don't, even though they do have an element of uh, pressure points, which would be sort of 30 alls or juice or break points. Where does a guy like to serve? And sometimes you can pick up some nice information. We certainly did our homework on his second round opponent and we knew exactly what he was doing. I, you know, I went out and watched his... Watched Hello. Well, things told him about it, got him a break in the in the first set because he mm-hmm. this you know because of a couple of things. So, so you know it's just old 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 school um, research. Uh, absolutely. So we live in a social you know media age where everything from any match you know of crowd or empire everything is captured and it is just transported so quickly on Twitter or Instagram and you know shared you know within seconds with thousands and then millions whatever. So you and Becker had a moment in 88 Wimbledon quarterfinals I always wanted to ask, and today in this social media age, that video would be all over. You fell over the net, and then he jumped across the net. Did you take that kindly? What was said in that moment? I mean, in India, we saw that clipping because quarterfinals were not live, but that clipping was shown again and again. And I'm, you know, I'm surprised I don't see that clipping ever. Uh, what do you recall of that moment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's probably somewhere. Um, I'm sure somebody's got it somewhere on YouTube, but... Uh, well, the situation was that Boris was was winning uh, the match. I was struggling. To, I was struggling along there, and he hit a uh, hit a volley, I think, off the frame of his racket. It popped up, and it was right close to the net. And I raced forward to knock it away. Um, so it was an easy put away, but I had to get there quickly, and I slipped um, and ended up. Well, I didn't actually slip. I was trying to stop myself from hitting because he was literally. Uh, there was just almost over the net. So I hit the ball and then I, just, I held my position for a second and then I literally fell into the net. And uh, that stage, because I hit the net, of course, you lose the point. So I was furious. I thought, my God, everything's going wrong today. And then only to my, you know, to look to my left to see Boris mocking me by jumping over the net. So first of all, he's winning. Second of all, he's had a really lucky shot. Third of all, I've touched the net and lost the point, <laughs> and then he's jumping over the net and mocking me. Uh, so you can, I don't think it'd take much imagination to to guess what I what I uh, what I told him. So um, so uh, as it turned out, I did win the point because my shot hit the backstop before I touched the net, but I didn't know it at the time. 
Um, but you know, there he was sort of making fun of me and I just thought, I just didn't think it was necessary. And, mm. and, uh, you know, I told him so. And then next thing you know, they got lip people reading lips and there's all over the newspapers, front page of the newspapers, cash tells Becker to F off on the center court, but there wasn't many microphones in, so nobody could really hear it anyway. Yeah. Uh, Nick but, Kyrgios, you know, I'm sure you know, he, he yeah, would say, you know, you got away with one there. <laughs> yeah. I'm Boris. Boris and Boris allegedly took offence to it. I said, I was like, "You're joking me, mate. If you're that, if you're that sensitive, yeah, uh, you know." But he won the match, and of course, you know, that was that was uh, so for me. It was, you know, disappointing match all round. Welcome to this segment of the Tennis with an Accent podcast presented by Red Circle. Uh, you've just listened to. Australian tennis legend and 1987 Wimbledon champion Pat Cash talking to Sakib. So now we move into segment two of this three-part podcast, and we are thrilled to have uh, Stats Insider sponsoring this episode. And part of that uh, sponsorship for this episode, we bring on one of Stats Insider's talented writers, James Rosewarn. Uh, he is the foremost tennis analyst inside uh, stats insider you know there is greg butin the chief data analyst but james rosewarren writes about tennis and he wrote about the 10 men and the 10 women who can win wimbledon you want to check that out at statsinsider.com.au james writes about a lot of different sports very intelligently and creatively uh, we want you to follow him on twitter his handle is james and then his last name is Rosewarn, R-O-S-E-W-A-R-N-E. The Twitter handle is the spelling of his last name, except for there's a K instead of the S in Rosewarn. So it's James Rokewarn. That's the Twitter handle, but it, he is James Rosewarn, uh, tennis writer for Stats Insider. And we are thrilled to have him on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Hi, James. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Mac. Great to be here. Yeah. So thank you very much. And let's get right to it. Um, sure. so you wrote about the 10 men and the 10 women who can win Wimbledon. Let's start with the women because, of course, in Australia, Ash Barty is the bee's knees, uh, taking the tennis world by storm, rising to world number one. So obviously she's at the top of the list. But, of course, there are 10 women not just her, who can win Wimbledon. So if you could, just in terms of uh, picking out some of the choice highlights from your article and from your analysis of the women's field, let's go through the 10 women who, in your mind, can win Wimbledon. Yeah, and it'd be great to probably even go straight to Carolina Pliskova, who you know, is, 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 is ready to sort of make a, a major Grand Slam breakthrough. And we've already seen a bit of carnage in the women's draw overnight with five seeds dropping out. And the Stats Insider Futures projection model has already had a big impact on that with Pliskova now into an 11.14% chance of claiming her first Grand Slam title. Um, a player such as Barty, who's been given, as you'd know, a horrendous draw, uh, her quarter is contested with five other Grand Slam winners. Um, also looking for her first Grand Slam championship. So we're already seeing a lot of uh, friction throughout the draw, um, and that was evidence overnight. So how, how let's uh, explore that point more, James. Sure. How 
the uh, difficulty levels of the draws in the, the various quarters affecting the odds. And I'm not asking for a precise um, mathematical answer, but just uh, kind of a general uh, view in terms of the range of difference. Like, let's say, you know, Pliskova was in Barty's quarter and Barty was in the quarter that Pliskova has. I mean, just on a kind of a general observation, how different do you think their odds would be uh, if they had switched quarters in the draw? Well, as an example, I think our model was projecting Pliskova as a 5% chance. This is before the draw was made. And the draws come out and there's been... You know, a lot of casualties in Pliskova's half of the draw already, and she's more than doubled her chances of winning it. Whereas Buddy's estate's pretty much the same, if not dropped a little bit with the draw coming out, and a section with Serena Williams and Kerber in it. Mogorutha is right in her section as well. Whether, whereas Pliskova isn't facing those kind of challenges in her section. Um, uh, we've already seen Marketa Vondrovsova out, you know, ousted from her, her quarter, um, Svitolina has advanced, which is a threat, but Svitolina doesn't have the grass court acumen that the likes of Bardi and, and Pliskova have. Obviously, sure. yeah, oh, and, Bardi's camp- and Bardi's campaign hasn't even begun, obviously. She'll play tonight, um, and so will all of those other that are made, you know, the caliber of those players in her section. They're all scheduled to play tonight as well. Benchich. Uh, Julia Gerges as well, who's just a phenomenally talented player and whose grass court skills really shine at this time of the year, even though there's not a big sample of grass to play with. So, yeah, it's 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 that crazy period where, you know, we anticipate the draw, it comes out, it's thrown up such a wrinkle for, for, for Barty. But um, we just have to see, we just have to get games playing and that that's what we wait for. And as we saw overnight, we've, we've lost five seeded women already and I think similar numbers in the men's as well. So, Sure. One more question on the women before we go to the men. And that is, and that is that, you know, in the bottom half, it's so wide open. I mean, obviously Absolutely. Know top quarter is so loaded, but the bottom half in contrast is so wide open. So do you see any other things from uh, the, 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 either the simulator or the, or the uh, projections uh, in terms of who has an unusually good chance you know, who someone who hasn't historically done all that great at Wimbledon or who hasn't played well on grass recently and who has an unusually good chance. Uh, some possibilities from that bottom half, Halep sure. and also uh, Madison Keys, who's never made a Wimbledon semifinal. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be those players, but like, is there anyone other than Pliskova from the bottom half who has unusually good odds in terms of the numbers that you're looking at at Stats Insider? Yeah, first first player who jumps out is Sophia Cannon, you know, an American player who is up to 6.2% uh, projection in our ratings, a really, really solid grass court player. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, she won the title in Mallorca, which was a massive scalp for her, probably her biggest career breakthrough to date. And she's got a, a, a big assignment next up against uh, uh, Yastremka, who's another up-and-coming young player from the Ukraine. And that section's already open, wide open, with Osaka losing overnight to Punteseva. Punteseva, sorry, he's always struggled with the, the, the Russian name. So um, Caroline Wozniacki in that section as well. But Wozniacki comes in with an injury cloud as well, even though she's got a really great grass court resume. But that bottom up, and Halep as well. Halep hasn't, hasn't progressed that well at Wimbledon historically. 
She doesn't come in with huge form. Lost in the semis in Eastbourne over the weekend. So, and okay. even in the top... One, one really quick question then. Of course. So, Halep, yeah. or Halep and Kennan, who has the higher percentage at this point? It's, uh, it's actually Kennan at 6.2%, whereas Halep is at 2.4% based on her um, grass court background. Yeah, and I mean, Halep yeah. has to play, at, or at least might play Azarenka in the third round, whereas Kennan does not have to play Osaka. So, I mean, that that makes complete sense to me because yeah. it's drop-based and Stats Insider is really good at drilling down and looking at the particularities of matchups, not so much, you know, overall 12-month acumen. This is Absolutely. a grass tournament. Stats Insider is really good at looking at, okay, this is grass, so that's a particular set of circumstances. So thank, thank you for that, James. So let's sure. now pivot. Let's now pivot to the men, unless you have any other really big uh, nuggets from the, from the women's uh, overview. No, not, not, not as yet. Not as yet. So let's more work. data will fly in though. I'm sure over the next sure. coming Absolutely. days. Absolutely. All right. So let's pivot to the men. So obviously everyone who's listening to this podcast segment knows that Stefano Tsitsipas and Alexander Zverev crashed out on day one so you had the t- the top 10 men uh to to win wimbledon i'm pretty sure that Sitsipas was on that list maybe not very <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so, we've already um, lost him you, you can speak to anything uh, that the Sitsipas loss has changed in terms of the dynamics or the percentages that you're working with at stats insider Sure. There wasn't, even though we've lost Verev and Sitsipas overnight, there hasn't been a profound change as much as, let's say, Pushkova's um, momentum in the women's, just because of how, you know, big three dominant or particularly Federer, Djokovic dominated this, our projections are. Um, and it's one of those situations where the grass court, as you know, it actually only comprises 7% of the entire tour. So we don't have a heap of data firing into our, our grass court machines. If, 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 if you get my drift there. That's why players like um, Feliciano Lopez and Sam Query are so highly rated on our model. They're both at 4.6% and 4% um, to win Wimbledon overall, which I know sounds like a quite high number. But they're two players who, you know, have such strong grass court games. And as you wrote today, Matt, the, the grass is a really, really hard court to master, and it's and it's equally difficult for our for our projections at the moment. One one question that I'm coming up with as I you know listen to you talk and provide this sure. you know very welcome perspective and context and you know delineating between you know and among different surfaces and different players' histories. I'm wondering. How how important is it, at least in terms of the information that you're looking at and how you how Stats Insider arrives at these um, grass percentages, differentiating between Wimbledon performance and overall grass performance? And I realize that can be very tricky because, you know, again, the grass season is so short that, you know, when you're when you're distinguishing between a Wimbledon warm up and Wimbledon itself it can be really hard to split that difference in terms of devising a grass formula. But let's take Feliciano Lopez as an example. You know, Query at least made a semifinal uh, sure. two years ago, 2017. Lopez has never made a semifinal. And there are other players who have done well at Queens Club or Hala, but who have not done all that well once they get 
to Wimbledon itself. I mean, Lopez, for instance, he's a much better Queens club player than a Wimbledon player. And it seems kind of odd since his game is so tailored to grass with his, you know, heavily uh, slice oriented game. But nevertheless, his Queens results tower over his Wimbledon results. So I'm wondering if there's anything uh, in particular you can share for our audience in terms of how stats insider uh, tries to balance or differentiate the warm-up results on grass from Wimbledon results and how much weight it gives to those two sides of the equation. Well, and it's, it's similar in a women's draw with Carolina Pliskova as well. She's got an amazing grass court record overall. And at Wimbledon, I believe she's just a touch better than 50% at about eight and seven or maybe nine and seven overall at Wimbledon. So we're looking at a lot of data over the last year um, outside of Wimbledon. So we're looking at Nottingham. We're looking at the Turkish event recently. We're looking at what happened in Birmingham and Eastbourne. And we're using that data as best as possible, using all that information. So even players who came through qualifying at Wimbledon, that's being factored into this model. Um, and, I, and I think there's heaps of benefits to that sets inside a model as well because it is so uh, court dependent and, and surface dependent. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's. Yeah. What, let me follow up on this now and go sure, back to sure. you know, the top 10 men. I think sure. there's no more puzzling or perhaps polarizing grass court resume or example than Rafael Nadal for a number of reasons. One, mm-hmm. because he hasn't generally played the warmups, certainly not in recent years. So that kind of removes a data point and that kind of makes it harder uh, you know, to gauge where he really is. And secondly, because, you know, as, as you're well aware, James, the first half of his career, uh, he, he regularly made Wimbledon finals, you know, from 2006 through 2011, you know, he didn't appear in 2009 because of an injury, but so he appeared in five Wimbledons in those six years. Uh, and he made the final, uh, majority of those times that he entered and then, of course, 2012 through 2017, he didn't even make a semifinal, let alone a final. And then he made the semis last year. Uh, so anything, when you look at Nadal on, on grass and how Stats Insider has perceived him from a number of vantage points through grass, um, when, you, when you analyze him, James, it, any particular data points or elements of history stand out in terms of um, – how Stats Insider rates Rafa on grass and or how uh, what, what percentage Stats Insider is assigning for Rafa's chances at Wimbledon? Well, the first number that jumps out with Nadal is a, is a really very low 0.2% chance of winning Wimbledon on our model. Obviously, that jumps out as being exceptionally low and probably about 30th in our rankings and a lot of people might jump out and say oh no that's that's really terrible and it's it speaks to exactly what you said if if we can't feed any data in if rafa is not participating in any lead-up events it's having a, a detrimental effect on that number and we can't exactly tell nadal to go and participate in nottingham or or, or anything like that to improve his number but yeah it's it's that that's the way our model is assessing is assessing his lack of uh, participation on the grass in the lead ups. Well, you know, I'm, really, yeah. I'm really yeah. glad we found that out because you know I I, I looked at uh, the you know the all of the surface rankings at Stats Insider um, in late May um, when you fir- when when we when we at Tennis with an Accent 
first formed a relationship with Stats Insider. And the lower grass rankings did stand out to me. You know, this yep. was, you know, even though he made a Wimbledon semi. So I'm really glad we got an answer to that question. <laughs> okay. That's something that I really had been wanting to hunt down. And and yeah. so, you know, Nadal fans who are listening in, you know, this is not <laughs> personal. It, you can now tell that, you know, the Stats Insider model structure was just to reward volume and more data points. And so it's not so much that Rafa has failed. It's just that he hasn't played a lot on grass. And of course, necessarily so, because after Roland Garros, he's wiped out. He needs mm. to take that time off. So this is not really a reflection of, it's not a commentary on Nadal's grass performance. Not entirely. It's more of a re revelation that the stats insider model, you know, it, to get a more robust and precise precise figures depends on greater volume of data points. So that that's really helpful. Um, one other thing then James, uh, to, yeah. to close out the, the 10 men who can win Wimbledon, uh, just, you know, main highlights in terms of, uh, so some of the higher end contenders in the stats insider model and, and some of the, uh, particular comparisons you'd like to highlight for our listening audience at tennis with an accent. Sure. Like uh, Marin Cilic is a f our third favorite to win it all at 8.4%. And he's got a, a decent quarter as well. He's in there with Rafa Nadal. He's in there with Nick Kyrgios. He's in there with Dominic Thiem, who's also, despite his really illustrious rank, I think he's number four in the world at the moment, has a really poor, well, at least our model is quite suspicious of his grass court form. And he hasn't, he's yet to make a real big run at Wimbledon either. So Chilich is someone to look out for. Mel Shronich at 6.4% is quite high on our model. And so is Agut. Uh, Batista Agut is, is one of these players, unlike Nadal, who, who seems to participate in every single event, gladly. Um, he's a bit of, you know, he's a journeyman across the tour. So he, he, he's, um, he's quite high in a model. And so is Kevin Anderson, of course, last year's runner up and winner overnight as well. He's at 2% and he's definitely in, well and truly in our top 10. And as you'd know, got a really um, favorable seed due to Wimbledon's quite different seeding formula. Absolutely. No, I mean, and Bautista Agut, that, he, he did rate very highly yeah. in your rankings. And so, you know, the fact that he does make holla quarters and semis, that's right. Uh, you know, he, he's piled up those uh, good results at, at the grass 500s in recent years. So because he has that volume of results and that the, the accumulated added data points, he, he turns up more favorably in the stats insider model. So uh, well, this was, boy, this was really, really helpful, James. Uh, I, oh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I would like you to, I would like you to have the floor now. What's going on at stats insider. What are the things that you're writing? What are some of the things you'd like to promote about statsinsider.com.au? Yeah, I'd really encourage people to get the stats insider and Check out everything we're doing with tennis, particularly at the moment with our simulator and checking our daily match projections, our futures projections for the tournament as well. Um, we're doing a heap of work, you know, with domestic sport in Australia, with Australian rules and the rugby league is, is something to keep an eye on. Um, rugby union is, is at its apex of the year as well. So, yeah, we're doing – we're crunching a lot of numbers here, spinning out a heap of projections and doing a whole heap of writing as well. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a busy time of the year but a really active time of the year at Stats Insider. So 
I absolutely encourage people to to get over and have a look and play around with with the numbers, play around with the model. The simulator is absolutely incredible as well. I know you and Sakib are big fans and have have played around with that as well and spits out all weird and wonderful wonderful results. So yeah, just get over there. <laughs> Well, we certainly will, and we'll also visit your uh, world tennis player rankings. You know that Stats Insider puts yeah, a- on that too. Uh, and for people who are listening in and who might be cricket fans, I know Sakib is a huge cricket fan, <laughs> and he also does a cricket podcast. You know, so we've been told that Stats Insider is developing its cricket hub; that it's not ready now, but that that is in the works. So that that's going to be like something great to look forward to in 2020 and and beyond. But uh, still lots of great content as we speak on Australian rules football, rugby, uh, f- international football, also the NBA. You know, we've just had free agency, so I'm, I'm sure we're going to get some some content on that. So yeah. lots to check out at Stats Insider. But of course, right now, Wimbledon is where it's at. James Rosewarn, you can find him on Twitter at his name, James, R-O-S-E-W-A-R-N-E. That's the spelling of his name. But on Twitter, He's at James Roquewarn. The Ro- the S in Rosewarn becomes a K. That is his Twitter handle. You really ought to follow him. James obviously puts out the great content at statsinsider.com.au, but he also forwards some really thoughtful articles elsewhere in the world of global sport, also on culture. Uh, it's a really intelligent, uh, well-curated Twitter feed. You really ought to follow James. And uh, we certainly hope that this podcast enables you to learn more about James himself and about Stats Insider's work and Stats Insider's tennis products. So, James Rosewarn, thank you for joining us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much, Matt. That was great. Welcome to segment two of the Tennis with an Accent podcast, sponsored by Stats Insider. I'm Matt Zenek with Sakib Ali, and on the heels of our part one of our uh, interview, or Sakib's interview, I should say, with Pat Cash, um, we're going to do a, a short segment because Sakib and I are uh, doing a segment that is part of the show as we uh, have come to reconstitute it on uh, Red Circle. So just we'll just spend a few minutes hitting a few of the week one highlights of Wimbledon at the All England Club. Some of the matches uh, that haven't yet become official, but which loom on the, the horizon potentially. And uh, I think we have to start with Rafael Nadal, Nick Kyrgios in round two, if Kyrgios is able to get through round one. It really needs no introduction. So Sakib, if the two meet, what are you expecting? What are you going to be looking for? I think Maddie just said it. There's a big uh, caveat to the match. Nick Kyrgios hasn't really been stellar in major round one matches. Uh, I believe he's you know played John Millman uh, not too long ago when he had a shoulder injury and then you know just finished the match and just uh, yeah. So the big question he's playing his countryman Jordan Thompson and uh, he got his hands full. But knowing Kyrgios, how he's been vocal on the recent podcast with Ben Rothenberg and then. Uh, in many social media interactions, he's pointed out like how he likes the Nadal matchup. And Rafa Nadal, you know, fresh from his 12th French Open win, 
Uh, he also is, I mean, he not also, he's the ultimate competitor. So he knows that there is like some bad blood in this matchup, even though, you know, that doesn't go beyond the court. So I think that match has popcorn and center court written all over it on Thursday. It's probably the second match or the third match on, on the order of play, uh, given that Federer is still playing his, you know, second down match that day. So yeah, I, I expect a lot from this match. Uh, a part of me is tempted to pick this as an upset because, you know, Kyrgios will show up for this match if he gets to this match. But at the same time, I think the way this uh, the, these two played in Acapulco, Nadal, I think, had three match points and then lost five points in a row, which was a very bizarre loss for Nadal. Uh, so I'm sure, he, not that he has a point to prove, both men would become would be ready for this. I mean, I, I don't think there'll be any love loss when this match takes place. And honestly, Matt, I think the sport can use a match like this. Kyrgios has projected a lot of things by many fans and uh, uh, we won't go there. But at the same time, I think if we get this kind of a matchup that early in a championship, I think it's it's going to be pretty good. Uh, Kyrgios has a win over Nadal in 2014 when he was relatively, uh, you know, I wouldn't say unknown, but, you know, his talent was still on the upswing. He's fairly young five years ago. He had a lot of aces in that match, if I remember correctly. I think 30-odd aces. But now, I think uh, early days in the tournament where the grass is still green, uh, I still think Nadal should be the favorite. But then if Kyrgios can sneak in a tie break, first set is going to be huge because I don't know how good Nick Kyrgios' body is going to be in a best-of-five even on grass. So over to you. How do you break down this match? I think it's a pretty 50-50 match. But if Kyrgios can, you know, take a set out, then I think he has more of a chance. On the other hand, Nadal can still win this match after losing the first set. Yeah, and we we need to realize that in 2010, when Nadal most recently won Wimbledon, he was down two sets to one, both to Robin Haas and Philip Petschner. And he came back from those deficits to win those matches, get out of week one, and win the title. So, you know, we know that Kyrgios beat Nadal at Wimbledon uh, a few years ago in the fourth round with a, with a serving clinic. And uh, people will obviously reference that match and give Kyrgios uh, a, a legitimate chance to win. And uh, if Kyrgios gets there, you know, you and I both know, everyone knows that Kyrgios might not get through round one. And that, that that's a, a big question mark. But that if he is able to create this matchup, you know, it's not going to be a cakewalk for Nadal. Um, simply because Kyrgios does get up for the elites, you know, that's, that's, those are the moments when he cares and on grass, you know, his serve and the other aspects of his game are more rewarded, you know, now, however, the fact that Nadal lost, you know, after having Kyrgios on the ropes earlier this year, and the fact that he had lost to Kyrgios at Wimbledon, you know, he's going to be very intense. He, you know, he's going to be extremely invested in, winning this match, um, it's going to be a very big deal for Nadal personally. Um, not so much in the grander scope of tennis, but just this moment, this opportunity, this chance to send a message to an opponent on the other side of the net. And, you know, when Kyrgios did beat Nadal in the fourth round uh, a few years ago, it feels like 25 years ago, um, you know, Kyrgios had house money. He had absolutely nothing to lose. And you could say that Kyrgios still has nothing to lose, but I would disagree with that because Kyrgios, with the, the time clock is ticking on his career. The months, the seasons, the years are drifting by, and Kyrgios has nothing to show for it. It's not really the same dynamic as it was uh, when a much fresher face 
without a lot of baggage, without the same media burden that Nick Kyrgios carried. It's not the same Kyrgios. It's not the same psychological profile. It's not the same overall situation. So over five sets, you know, I definitely think that Nadal could reel in Kyrgios and make the adjustments he needs, even if, as you said, Kyrgios sneaks out a first set tiebreaker, which he very well could. So I would definitely give the edge to Nadal. It is a tricky week one draw for Nadal. I mean, this is certainly the kind of draw that has tripped him up in the past. Last year, he did not get an especially difficult round one draw. Um, I know that he played Alex Demonar in the third round. That was pretty easy bake, tasty cake for him. So this year's draw is tougher, but I do think nevertheless that he will have the resources and he will display the consistency which will enable him to outlast Kyrgios if this mm-hmm. matchup occurs. And I think that Kyrgios-Thompson is is pretty much a coin flip. Thompson did have a medical timeout uh, in his match in Antalya, Turkey. So that throws a question mark o- over Thompson's uh, situation you know, from that side of the aisle. So that, it, it's a lot of question marks here, but I do think that Nadal is going to see his way through this match and see his way through week one at the championships. Yeah, I, I would just like to add this. I think you made some interesting points about uh, time running out on Nick. Of course, he's still very young, but at the same time, he's not winning even matches in majors. You know, he's not even going to round four consistently. So I think uh, he knows deep down, he may play down, you know, like uh, the seriousness that's attached to his career, the lack of seriousness, but we all know he's going to show up for this match. And I think the only difference here, Matt, is playing on a Monday, like they played five years ago in fourth round. And, you know, it's going to be warm weather. And I think baseline footing would be favoring Nadal. But I think when you play Wednesday and Thursday, I still think the grass is about to be slowly getting worn out. And uh, I think that's where Nick has even a better chance. But again, I think Nadal would be coming out full, you know, like in, you know, like beast mode or, you know, game mode, whatever, you know, the saying is he would be ready. He would be just ready for this match. And I think it should be a great match. And uh, another match is a repeat of, I think, a Queen's uh, matchup uh, two weeks ago. I think uh, Grigor Dimitrov's lost to Felix Ojaliasim. That's also, I believe, a Wednesday match because they are in the Djokovic half. And uh, I know we've talked at you know length about Dimitrov. You've written and we, we've talked about this, that how much you have written. And, you know, he's a guy who's frustrated many a writers, many a fans. You always see uh, the potential is, you know, aligning up with all the promise that's there and his performance is measuring the potential word. And then now he runs into Felix, who himself is, I think, has a date with destiny. A lot of people believe he's the future champion at many of these events. So Dimitrov has his hands full, or should we say Oji Aliasim has his hands full? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, and I think that, you know, Oji Aliasim, you know, if, if he doesn't win in, in majors this year, you know, no one's going to hold it against him. But... But with that having been said, I mean, this is, you know, an offer that's that's on his ledger sheet. And you know that, you know, well, first off, he'd like to get, get through round one against Vashik Pospisil. But then, you know, if he meets Dimitrov, you know, it would be this match would be an occasion. This match would be a big deal. There would be plenty of publicity. It would be one of the highlight matches on the Wednesday of the of the first week, as you noted. So, you know, it is a spotlight occasion. And, you know. We, the global tennis community is, I think, rightly, I don't think it's really all that premature. You know, you can see the makings, you can see the ingredients and the substance of 
a future champion in OJ Aliasim. You know, when he mat- his body matures, he gets accumulated experience. You know, he his ground strokes, his overall game is just going to have more weight, more heft, more authoritativeness than it already does now. And right now, it has a lot. It's very easy to see him being the guy who's going to put the rest of men's tennis at his feet in several years. That having been said, you don't want uh, an ofer, a duck, to continue to be unbroken. You want to be able to get rid of it. You want to be able to make your way into third and fourth rounds of majors and to get used to the experience sooner rather than later of playing into the weekend uh, at, at major tournaments. So, you know, there is some pressure. There would be some pressure attached to this yeah. for Felix. Can I intervene with just another question? I know uh, your style of writing, you kind of dodge certain cliches, but uh, what's your, I think we have never talked about this, how much of you be, uh, you believe in the aura of center court, like Oji Alisim, most probably against Dimitra would be drawn because the other big men's match could be Anderson. I think the committee might as well put this match on center, at least if not on court one. So you think, uh, could that be a factor? Because uh, as we talked about, Kyrgios, I think, played his first match on center court and he took Nadal out in 2014. And Oji Alisim, of course, is playing Dimitra, who is nowhere close to the stature of a Nadal or a Djokovic or a Federer. But do you think those things can come into play? If the match is tight, like uh, that's his first time on center court, uh, a little bit of cliche talk, but what's your opinion on those kind of pairings when a future champion or a prodigy, you know, takes on the grandest of stages? I, I think that possibility is always there. You know, there's a, there's a part in every tennis player who, when he or she first steps on to center court, at least in a main draw context, there, there, you know, you're going to have some butterflies. You're going to have the blood pumping very quickly. So there's always the possibility that that having been said, it would be a much more uh, stressful occasion for Felix if he was playing the big three on center court uh, to play Dimitrov, especially Dimitrov in his position. It, that would probably enable Felix to think that it's that's just another match. You know, obviously. No, no match on center court is fully just another match. But in terms of the athlete's preparation and the process of just trying to focus on hitting the next shot, hitting the next ball, and to have a normal uh, routine of, of match preparation, um, Dimitrov would enable Felix, I think, to, to view the situation in a more normal way. And then let's talk about Dimitrov. You know, he lost in three tiebreakers to Stan Wawrinka, in the third round of Roland Garros, but it's not really as though Dimitrov choked. This, this, that was about Vavrinka serving huge in, on clutch points. Remember that Vavrinka at Roland Garros, he saved 16 consecutive break points, bridging the end of the Tsitsipas fourth round match with the beginning of the quarterfinal Federer match. Vavrinka had the clutch gene back. He got that clutch uh, identity back. And so it really wasn't about Dimitrov falling short. It was about Stan being excellent in crunch time. Dimitrov competed really well in Paris. He competed the way a top 15 player would. You know, it, it took a three-time major champion to bump him out of there. So I think there's reason to think that Dimitrov, you know, that, that his body, specifically his shoulder, is not barking as much. It's He's dealing with that better. It's not as much of an oppressive force 
uh, in his tennis life right now. And, and so I think that Dimitrov has shown signs of re-entering the positive competitive space that can lift him to a higher plane. And really, I think that you know, with, with Oje Aliassime being so young and still so new to the process of best of five and what that requires, I think that this match, as much as we might want to see Felix against Djokovic in the fourth round, I think purely if on an analytical level, based on what I saw in Paris, I do think the match is Dimitrov's to lose. That doesn't mean he isn't going to lose it. He's been known to lose a lot of matches that were his to lose. But nevertheless, I do think that if Dimitrov establishes a relatively high standard, it's going to be hard for Ojeali Asim to top it. I think I agree with you, but I'll put you know a two cents of mine here when you were talking about if uh, Felix was playing a champion like a Federer or Djokovic or Nadal, he probably the occasion combined with the opponent could get to him. But I think the otherwise Felix knows. I mean, he has a good head on shoulder, but he knows the potential of he's talking. And uh, if he sees Dimitrov as another match, I think that's more pressure on him. I hope he doesn't see. Again, it's all hypothetical. You know, we, we're not in his head and we don't know how the guy operates, but I hope he doesn't think it's his match to lose. And then, you know, then you can get ahead of yourself and then I think things can be complicated. But I, I beg to differ. I think, uh, I, you're right, Dimitrov was pretty impressive in French French Open and he didn't lose the match. Wawrinka won that match. That's a classic difference. Both men played well. Uh, I still think all things uh, being said and done, uh, I think the upside on Felix is already taking over at least, you know, how I see this match, and I, I think Ojeda wins this match. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone would be shocked if he did. I, I see it fundamentally as a, as a coin flip match. I mean, I, I think it's right down the middle. It's going to come down to the proverbial handful of points on grass, a few select opportunities that one guy is going to convert and the other guy doesn't. Great. So, do you want to talk about a potential first week match at the WTA side of the draw, which? which is exciting and, you know, you, you think maybe uh, we can, you know, have listeners relate to it on the podcast, even if the match has been played, because uh, Kai Kanepi always gets into those matches, doesn't she? So do you want to talk about that match? She does. And yeah, so, you know, we're obvious, obviously, you know, let's step back a bit first in terms of week one on the WTA side and realize how many different incredible matches we could have in the third round, we could have Sloan Stevens against Joe Conta in the third round. This was a quarterfinal at Roland Garros. You know, we could have Amanda Anisimova and Petra Kvitova, uh, two players who have made semifinals or better at the majors this year. There are several other third rounders, which could be spectacular. But so that's going to get plenty of attention in the course of time during week one of Wimbledon. So let's look a little bit earlier in the week and in the second round, you could have Belinda Bencic against Kaya Kanepi. And I don't think that Kaya Kanepi needs too much of an introduction to tennis fans. Everyone knows that she's the, the player who can make a seated player's life miserable in the early round. It's, it's, it's what she does. You know, she has the huge game. It's hit or miss tennis. But when she's hitting it, when she's on, she's just she is a borderline unplayable opponent who can just take the racket out of your hands. So that could certainly apply to Bencic. And looking at that uh, Benchich Kanepi possible second rounder, let's then broaden our focus on Benchich's draw. Let's stop for a moment and realize the draw that could be in front of Benchich. In round one, um, 
You know, she has Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova. Not very easy. She's made a major quarterfinal. She, in fact, she made a major quarterfinal earlier this year in Australia, uh, and is incredibly talented. That is her round one opponent. Round two, it could be Kanepi. Round three, it could be Donna Vekic. Round four, Ash Barty. Round four, Barty and Vencic in round four, not in a semifinal or final, round four. And if Vencic gets by Barty, the world number one, she could play Serena or Kerber in the quarterfinals. And then in the semifinals, there would be two-time Wimbledon champion Petra Kvitova. Rounds one through six, can you imagine, can you recall a tougher round-by-round draw for any player since the move from 16 seeds at the majors to 32? I mean, you you might be able to remember one very specific example. Maybe, for example, Roger Federer at the 2017 Australian Open, you know, when he played Burdich in the in the uh, third round and then had Nishikori, uh, and then he had to play Stan in the semis and Nadal in the final. That that was pretty darn hard. But uh, Federer, if I recall, he played Misha Zverev in the quarters. So, I mean, that gave him a little bit of a breather. There is no breather for Belinda Bencic, and Kaya Kanepi in the second round is, is really uh, – illustrative of that there's really no easy match for Benchich and and her draw rounds one through six it really shows the quality depth argument one can make about the WTA tour you know in the bottom half it's pick a name from a hat in the bottom half of the draw who the heck knows what's going to happen in that top half oh my gosh it is so loaded and Benchich's draw epitomizes that reality yeah, I think uh, you covered it quite well. I think that's definitely one of the matches of the first week. Uh, that I think I'll be interested to follow that just based on the podcast. And uh, anything else, Matt, you want to talk before we wrap this uh, episode and uh, move the conversation? Uh, just want to let folks know that you can follow our sponsor for this podcast, Stats Insider. It's based in Australia. They're obviously uh, very much interested in how Ash Barty does at the tournament. I've written about Ash Barty for Stats Insider. I'm now an occasional contributor to Stats Insider. I've written about Barty. I've written about Andy Murray. And I've written about the other Australians uh, at the tournament and what their outlook is. So please go to statsinsider.com.au. They are our sponsor for this podcast. And we're happy to announce for the next two podcasts as well. So we're really happy for the support that Stats Insider has given us. And we encourage all of you as listeners to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, visit the website. And that is what uh, Nick Splitter, who has been working with us on promoting Stats Insider, he, you know, they don't, they're not looking for monetary donations. They just want you to visit the site, look at what they have, um, their, their tennis Wimbledon simulator, um, and also their Women's World Cup coverage, they also cover Australian rules football. They also cover the NBA and other uh, North American sports. Look around the website. Check it out. Ask them questions. Give them feedback. Statsinsider.com.au. We really hope that you will support Stats Insider in return for Stats Insider being so generous in its sponsorship of Tennis with an Accent. No, absolutely. Whatever Matt said. And also, if you have time, uh, just drop in a review on the Apple podcast. And also do write any engagement reviews for the podcast you listen, you know, critique us or, you know, drop in ideas what we should be talking about. 
uh, we thank you for your continued support, but I think uh, some feedback in terms of engagement would always, you know, uh, keep us going and we'll try, try to find ways to make it even more engaging. And on a final note, Matt, uh, so you've written about Ash Barty and uh, Andy Murray. Uh, would you be writing about Nick Kyrgios on Friday, week one, if he does the impossible? I, I am pretty sure that Nick Splitter of Stats Insider will ask me to write about Kyrgios if he beats Nadal. So that that uh, that will that will tell the tale itself. And as Nadal would say, we're going to see, no? <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's bye for now from Sakeb and Matt. The official tennis world rankings can only tell us so much, which is why the predictive analytics and data experts from Australia, Stats Insider, custom-built their own tennis world ranking system, separate and independent of the official ranks, filterable by surface. We think they're better than the official rankings, and here's why. The official rankings, which are updated monthly, take into account the player's basic wins and losses and how far they advance in each tournament, with larger tournaments worth more ranking points than some of the smaller ones. Here's where the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings are different. The Stats Insider World Rankings aren't just based on how many matches a player has won or lost. Stats Insider's rankings also take into account who each player's opponent was in each of those matches, plus the surface the match was played on to determine how many points are allocated to or removed from the player's ranking. This allows players to rise or fall in the rankings, not simply based on their win-loss record, but also accounting for who they defeated or were defeated by and on what type of surface. The best thing, these rankings are updated daily to keep you completely up to date. You can actually filter the men's and women's rankings pages by court type, allowing a better understanding of which players are performing well on the different surfaces. For example, Right now, just prior to Wimbledon, the ATP has Milos Raonic ranked at number 17 in the world. Stats Insider also has the big Canadian ranked 16th overall, but number four in the world on grass courts, behind only Marin Cilic, Novak Djokovic, and the legend himself, Roger Federer. Check out the Stats Insider Tennis World Rankings at statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au. Wimbledon is arguably the most prestigious event on the tennis calendar. The newly crowned world number one, Ash Barty, recently ended Australia's 46-year drought at Roland Garros, and all eyes will be on her in the next fortnight. Over on the men's side of things, Roger Federer is looking to equal Martina Navratilova's five, nine Wimbledon singles titles and remind the world why he's called grass. While these two are the tournament favorites, it doesn't mean they are complete unbeatable. What do you mean, I hear you asking? That's right. As we all know, there are other possibilities at the All England Club in 2019. Enter Stats Insider's free Wimbledon simulator. The Australian-made tournament simulator is the best way to explore Stats Insider's Wimbledon predictions, providing hours of entertainment while you work your way through up to 10,000 different tournament journeys. 
Simply select the player whose Wimbledon journey you want to follow, then sit back and watch the simulator do its thing. Each time you click Simulate, the entire tournament will simulate match by match, processing through one single possible tournament outcome from up to 10,000 possible Wimbledon championships. Unhappy with the result or want to see a different variation? Just run through the simulator again and you'll have a different outcome. Remember, there are 10,000 possibilities in total. So, unless you've got something hot on the stove or have an important presentation to prepare for in the morning, have a play around with your favorite contenders and look at all the different possible ways that Wimbledon could play out. Find the Wimbledon simulator at statsinsider.com.au and click Tennis to access all Stats Insider's tennis projection tools absolutely free. That's statsinsider.com.au.